The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Kris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Breaking news. One-legged Trump challenges Biden and others to ass-kicking contest. Quote, I hereby challenge Rupert Murdoch and Sons, Biden, Wall Street Journal heads to acuity tests. Today, impossibly, infuriatingly, embarrassingly, we have now circled back to what, with the benefit of hindsight, appears to be the saddest possible thing, the highlight of the Trump presidency in the mixed mind of Donald Trump, July 2020, or perhaps earlier, when he was told to memorize an endless string of complicated, unconnected, ill-defined words, possibly from other languages, and then not just to remember them, but to remember them in the exact order. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. I proved I was all there, Trump said proudly, horrifyingly, Again and again and again to every interviewer, at every campaign speech, to everybody who would hold still long enough to listen, beaming like a toddler who had managed to poop in the potty chair, mostly anyway. I aced it. I aced the test. We thought those were the most humiliating things he could ever say about himself and that test, which on the mental or intellectual soundness scale is slightly above Put a mirror under his nose to see if he's still breathing. We were wrong. For last night, somebody evidently told Trump about the Wall Street Journal poll showing 73% of registered voters believe Joe Biden is too old to run for president. A not unexpected number, given that the Wall Street Journal poll was run by a former Trump pollster. But in that context, 
the second number was actually shocking. 47% of registered voters in the pro-Trump poll run by a pro-Trump ex-Trump pollster, 47% think Trump is too old to run. And after a typo in his first sentence of his rage post last night, he got right to it. Quote, a few years ago, I was the only one to agree to a mental acuity test and aced it. Aced is, of course, in caps. Well, I hereby challenge Rupert Murdoch and sons, Biden, WSJ heads, to acuity tests. I will name the place and the test, and it will be a tough one. Nobody will come even close to me. Unquote. He trashed the journal. He called it globalist, damaged goods, phony and rigged. He is enraged again over this one issue over which he cannot possibly control himself. The reality that he is not a sane or intelligent man. And that was just the start of it. It devolved from there. It devolved into his claim that the true test of non-mental strength is... Golf! Quote, we can also throw some physical activity into it. I just won the senior club championship at a big golf club. As an aside, he means his own golf club. He said so earlier. He cheats at all golf courses. There are hundreds of witnesses. He cheats at his golf courses with impunity. He cheats, literally, in New Jersey over his wife's dead body. Quoting again, I just won the senior club championship at a big golf club with many very good players. To do so, you need strength, accuracy, touch, and above all, mental toughness. Ask Brett Bear, Fox, a very good golfer. Yeah, that's who I'm going to to decide mental and physical competence in a 77-year-old insane megalomaniac. Brett freaking Bear. The Wall Street Journal and Fox are damaged goods and their failed desanctimonious push and stupid $780 million settlement. Where's the rest of that sentence? There isn't one. And the final thrust of this intellectual argument, proving he is the smartest man in the world. An intellectual argument that would make Einstein weep and run away. All in caps. Morons! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I met Donald Trump on Thursday, December 15th, 1983, at a breakfast symposium here in New York City, featuring the owners of four New York area sports franchises. The CNN cameraman and the deck operator and I left the hotel, having interviewed each of them in silence. As we got to the van, I finally broke that silence. Well, I said to the cameraman, what the F is wrong with that guy? The other two burst into laughter. Little did we know, that was his mental high point. That was nearly 40 years of Trumpian mental deterioration ago. And every time I think we have hit rock bottom, Trump finds a new high in low. And yet, even at this possible bottom of the bottomless pit, he still seems slightly aware that he is in danger. It's not enough to challenge the Murdochs and Biden and the journal editors to acuity tests. They must be acuity tests that Trump selects. 
and locates. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, and cheeseburgers. There, I run rings around you logically, Joe, you old poopy pants. If I'm Joe Biden, or Rupert Murdoch, or anybody else named Murdoch, or the journal honchos, I take Trump up on this offer immediately, and I see how quickly he forgets that offer, and then I start bringing it up daily. And I start bringing it up hourly. Bring it up. Keep bringing it up. President Biden, this is your magic wand. Where is Trump's acuity test? Where is our acuity showdown? And maybe somebody will say to Trump, make Biden and the Murdochs remember this phrase, ECF number 47-3. Because ECF number 47-3, that could be the most important phrase this week in Trump land. Because something will happen today involving ECF number 47-3 which could lead to a gag order being imposed on Trump by the end of the week or the beginning of next week, or maybe it's sanctions, or maybe it is a speeded up Washington trial start date. Unfortunately, barring the most unlikely of circumstances, we will not know what it is today, nor which outcome it will produce. But today is when the Trump legal team has to tell Judge Tanya Chutkin why it does not want made public whatever is the background to this filing by Jack Smith last week. I'll quote it again. Such a requirement would grind litigation in this case to a halt, which is particularly infeasible given the pressing matters before the court, including the defendant's daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool in this case, as described in the government's motion. C-E-C-F. Number 47-3. Person, woman, man, camera, TV, cheeseburgers. If you have a copy of ECF number 47-3, give me a ring, because I don't. Nobody outside the court is supposed to. It's under seal. But it is clearly about Trump statements and or revelations. And it could be about his threats to the judge and the prosecutors and the world. And it could be about some piece of evidence he alluded to that didn't really register with you or me or anybody following this stuff even more closely than we are, but which caused a couple of garbage cans inside the special counsel's office to spontaneously burst into flames last week. Trump's ambulance chasers were to respond to Judge Chutkin, unless they were able to find a way to delay it, or that nice Miss Haba misplaced her brain again. Smith is to respond on Wednesday. Although one thing we already know about Smith is that he will be ready to respond exactly 11 minutes and 47 seconds after he reads whatever the Trump lawyers write today, because that's who he is, and that's why he's in this job, and that's why he could actually play beat the clock and win and save democracy. Could. The defendant's daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool in this case, as described in the government's motion CECF number 47-3, what I would give to know the rest of that now. 
What we do know today that is new is that Trump or those operating on his behalf appear to have broken more laws regarding presidential records and their storage and their pilferage. There is a second Trump document stash in greater West Palm Beach, Florida, besides the Mar-a-Lago crap shack with the boxes of top secret documents kept securely next to the commode as we slowly see developing what will happen to Trump if he doesn't seize power again and he doesn't go to jail and instead he becomes one of those hoarders who cannot really make it from his bed to the front door because his way is blocked by 116,000 stacked fake copies of Time magazine proclaiming him golfer of the year for 1987. NBC News reports that 10 minutes away from Mar-a-Lago on North Flagler Drive, the quintessential Florida address, North Flagler Drive, one floor before the headquarters for the Trump Secret Service detail in Florida, there is an unmarked post-presidential office paid for by the United States government No, the real one, not Trump's pretend one. And that while the presumption is there are no secret documents there now, that does not mean there weren't lots before or might not be some now. NBC reports that Trump's lawyers ordered a private firm to search the office for just such secret materials and at least one box of classified stuff was reportedly moved from Mar-a-Lago to North Flagler and then apparently back to Mar-a-Lago. Boxes everywhere, says an NBC source. The state of that office is generally cluttered. Like going inside Trump's brain. Don't wear your good shoes. Boxes piled against walls. Boxes piled not against walls. Current and recent ex-employees of Trump political action committees like Bo Harrison, Molly Michael, and Desiree Thompson, and Thompson still works for Save America PAC, have had access And while that is not a crime, you can do both. If those Trump political employees are doing political stuff in the government paid for office on North Flagler, they are violating 5 U.S. Code 7324 political activities on duty. This will not send any of them to jail, but it should send Department of Justice investigators to North Flagler immediately. The maddening part of this, of course, is that as Trump never managed to establish any kind of line dividing politics and corruption and what passed for his actual job in the White House, he also never managed to establish any kind of line dividing politics and corruption and sheer incompetence and confusion. NBC went to the menacing, lumpy Trump spokesman Stephen Chung for comment about the North Flagler office and Chung's response, quote, I've never heard of a North Flagler office, unquote, leaving the astonishing possibility that somebody in the Trump camp for the first time might accidentally be telling the truth. The next story is simple. Jenny Thomas and Leonard Leo must be indicted on corruption charges and Clarence Thomas must be indicted for influence peddling and the leaking of Supreme Court decisions in advance. And we're probably profiteering off insider knowledge of what those decisions were to be. And he must be removed from the court immediately by any legal means, including arrest. And until all this happens, the Supreme Court of the United States is illegitimate and its jurisdiction over the laws and people of this nation is no more valid than person, woman, man, camera, TV. If you missed Politico's breakthrough report yesterday, find it and read it. 
months before the infamous Citizens United decision in which supposed First Amendment defender and hero Floyd Abrams helped a bunch of goons led by David Bossie sell out democracy in this country. Clarence Thomas's wife and Leonard Leo and the Thomases, oh, I'm just a friend who likes to give the Thomases money, friend, Harlan Crow organized exactly the kind of limitless, boundless political slush fund in which corporations could funnel any amount of money they chose to to buy limitless political advertising and influence on behalf of an issue or a candidate, provided the money did not go directly to the candidate. Leo and Ginny Thomas had it ready to go before Ginny Thomas's husband helped make it happen. Politico offered a damning timeline of events in addition to the great article. In brief, September 9, 2009, the oral arguments concluded in Citizens United. Two months later, Cleta Mitchell, now where do we know that name from, filed an application with the IRS to create an organization called Liberty Central Inc. on behalf of Ginny Thomas. December 31, 2009, Ginny Thomas signs the incorporation paperwork. Leonard Leo is listed as a director. And in the following weeks, half a million in seed money is donated by Harlan Crow. January 14, 2010, Virginia approves the request by Ginny Thomas to incorporate Liberty Central, Inc. One week later, Citizens United is handed down by the Supreme Court. February, Ginny Thomas tells CPAC she's been called to the front lines. Out of the cult and into the front lines. And on and on and on and on. At the time, I called Citizens United a worse decision by the court than even Dred Scott and the fascists mocked me. This damning political timeline goes on for more than a dozen more dates, but one more stands out symbolically. October 9th, 2010, Jenny Thomas leaves a voicemail demanding an apology from Anita Hill. They are scum. Ginny Thomas is scum. Clarence Thomas is scum. Leonard Leo is scum. Harlan Crow is scum. Cleta Mitchell is scum. Finally, I guess this is comic relief. It used to ring in the furthest reaches of my mind, and now I hear it weekly, daily, hourly, and always it's a little louder than it was last time. The theory that this country is just a contiguous group of regional tribes that once were sort of held together by nothing more solid than the fact that there were only three television networks, so that the odds were great that despite the fundamental and unsolvable differences Statistically, at least, we all shared some basic cultural element. Oh, yeah, I saw Petticoat Junction the other night, too, and that new Bobby Joe is a dish. Or, Artie Johnson is funny. Or, hey, look, ABC just changed newscasters again. That's 16 times this year. Now, those long-gone gossamer bonds are a distant memory and we have people born and raised in this country, the children of countless generations here, and they are speaking a language which they think is English and which the other native-born speakers around them think is English, 
but it's, it's not English. We take you to Rapid City, South Dakota. This woman is a grandmother, presumably someone whom the thin veneer of civilization and education has at least brushed over once or twice across the decades. She owns clothes. She's wearing them in the correct position. She has jewelry. She was wearing a pleasant summer hat, fetching almost. She's nearly in tears as she talks about Trump. I, too, would be in tears if I was feeling and saying what she was feeling and saying because she's not actually speaking English, but she does not know this. She is yearning for what she believes Trump brings, and what Trump brings, in her words, is... Stability. I'm very excited and hopeful. It gives me hope and security and just stability. I like what you said. I mean, that's a very authentic answer. Alas, we are lost. We cannot possibly educate these people in time. They do not know they need help. They would never accept that they need help. They would never admit that they are stupid. They would never accept the idea that the word stability came to them in a dream. They would shoot you rather than accept your correction. Besides, madam, I believe that the word you actually meant there in terms of Trump was stabability. Also of interest here, voice okay, a little scratchy, not too much stamina, bear with me. Stabability or instability. Some slight marble-sized chunk of it has returned to the universe. The great day has come. Behold, the age is closed. This is January 1st in the year 1 AC after Chuck. We are free from one of the countless destructive factors in our land. Chuck Todd is gone as the host of Meet the Press. On the other hand, his final words were, in essence, I did a great job and I made America smarter. And no, he didn't seem to be stoned. That's next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline Washington. And now he belongs to the ages. Chuck Todd signed off as the host of NBC's Meet the Press, and he left as he started, with his head completely up his ass. Quote, On my first day on the job of Meet the Press, I was handed an audience survey of Sunday show viewers, and the number one reason folks said they tuned in was not because the person was behind the chair or the guests. It was simply to get educated. So, for nearly a decade, I've had the honor of helping to explain America to Washington and Washington to America. Can you imagine at any point in your life being that divorced from reality to think that you explained anything to anybody other than how not to do television, how not to report the news, how not to interview people, how not to represent truth, and most importantly, how not to represent the urgent needs of of the nation in which you live. I have always said that someday the American Psychiatric Association would officially declare that the compulsive need to be on television is a full-fledged mental illness requiring treatment. I am genuinely surprised that that day was not yesterday after Chuck Todd said that and added... (laughs) Quote, it's that education piece that I'm hanging my hat on for the rest of my professional life. Unquote. I have known Chuck Todd since the year 2005. He does not own a hat. He does not have a professional life. Chuck, do not let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Or to be more precise, Chuck, do not let both sides of the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Oh, and if you think it's going to get better under his replacement, Kristen Welker, it's not. Let me remind you of this from my podcast of August 24th. Three Trump hoodlums led by Jason Miller 
were, according to Politico, whining and dining a dozen of the top national political reporters at a steakhouse called Rare in Milwaukee. The point was to let Trump be there, yet remain personally in absentia, and to continue taking his shots at Ron DeSantis by remote control. Jason Miller and Chris Lasavita and Stephen Chung handed these dozen reporters packs of pudding snacks. That would be a shot at DeSantis. And they handed them DeSantis debate bingo cards, which called DeSantis de sanctimonious and invoked his varying pronunciations of his names, how many times he would say woke, and Ron DeSantis can melt in the hot sun for all I care because the issue is not which fascist politicians thugs were doing the insulting and which fascist politicians thugs were on the receiving end. It's who was there. Josh Dossie of the Washington Post was there. Dana Bash of CNN was there. I wish I was surprised by that name. An NBC reporter named Dasha Burns. The chief election correspondent of CBS News, Robert Costa. A producer there named Finn Gomez. Rachel Scott, senior congressional correspondent, ABC. Shane Goldmacher, New York Times. Rob Crilly, UK's Daily Mail. He was the one who started the whole Biden no comment on Hawaii right-wing feeding frenzy. He was the pool reporter. He never heard Biden say no comment, but he and some other people thought they could read his lips at a great distance, so they attributed that quote to him, and it's still attributed to him. And also at the merriment, with Jason Miller and Stephen Chung before the first Republican debate, eating their food and participating in their slamming of another candidate and laughing along with them, Kristen Welker, the new pre-corrupted host of NBC's Meet the Press. And, as a postscript, if you want to feel even worse about the media and the coverage of politics in this country, the lead item in the Politico Daily Newsletter yesterday, the Jenny Thomas SCOTUS scandal? No. Chuck Todd's farewell speech after his firing. Then Jenny Thomas. Because Politico also could not tell the difference between the relative whereabouts of the ass and the elbow. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, the embattled president of the Spanish Football Association, Luis Rubiales, who forced a kiss on the mouth of star player Jenny Hermoso after Spain's World Cup title win, has told interviewer Pierce Morgan he will finally resign. Possibly just to get Pierce Morgan to shut up for two seconds. Michigan State football has suspended its head coach Mel Tucker, possibly as a precursor to firing him. This came hours after USA Today reported that after months of working with survivor Brenda Tracy to raise awareness with his athletes about sexual abuse and rape and harassment, she alleges Coach Tucker got on the phone with her last year and made sexual comments and began to masturbate. Mel Tucker. Mel Mother Tucker. Now suspended without pay indefinitely. I wonder how he's going to spend all that spare time.
Coast. And it may be time to start rescheduling the major tennis tournaments. One fan collapsed during the U.S. Open here in New York last week. Men's third seed Daniel Medvedev said into a courtside camera, quote, one player is going to die and they're going to see... And climate protesters interrupted a match last week, one of them gluing his own feet to the stadium floor. The Associated Press reports that in the last 45 years, temperatures at the Grand Slam tennis events are up an average of 5 degrees. And that by 2050, the Australian Open, according to one calculation, will have an average real feel at midcourt of 147 This underscores the unlikeliest truth of the coming climate catastrophe and maybe our best hope. There are two areas in which the average human and the average denier will get the message first. And they are not scientific and they are not political. They are insurance. The big insurers are already dropping out of markets like Florida and sports. Outdoor sports schedules, especially tournaments, especially tennis tournaments, will be destroyed as summers like this one become the norm. Someday soon, you will not have to be a protester to get glued in place at the U.S. Tennis Open. That will not be glue. That will be your outer layer of skin, which has melted and stuck you to your seat. Still ahead on Countdown 9-11, 22 years later, the story of Tomas Reyes and the story of what is now the bright, straight, clear line from the nightmare of that day to the nightmare of Trump and American fascism. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Sean Spicer. Speaking of Trump and fascism, there's somebody from ground zero. Former Trump press liar and now host of the Sean Spicer Show, whose Twitter account has 152 followers. 152. Possibly because he does stuff like this. A poll. Quote, yes or no. Do you think every single GOP presidential candidate could be Joe Biden in 2024? It remained on his feed like that B. I think he meant B. Beat, but who knows? Could every single GOP presidential candidate could be Joe Biden in 2024? It remained on his feed uncorrected like that for the following three days. The runner-up, Elon Musk. How many shovels can one man own? Because all he does is keep digging. Somebody posted that 15 of the 23 monkeys in whom Musk's mad scientists implanted Neuralinks have reportedly died. Well, Musk had to answer that, of course. He is compulsive. Quote, No monkey has died as a result of a Neuralink implant. First, our early implants, to minimize risk to healthy monkeys, we chose terminal monies. Close to death already, unquote. We'll skip the Freudian slip where he wrote monies instead of monkeys and just concentrate on the fact that Elon Musk took a bunch of dying monkeys and turned their last days on this earth into torturous surgery and the implanting of Musk brand machines that promptly killed them. Elon, who's getting the first human Neuralink? Are you volunteering? The winner for sheer unawareness of his own world, though, is Greg Guttersnipe of Fox News, complaining about a protest blocking a pregnant woman's access to health care. 
Now just think about that for a second. I mean, that's Chuck Todd level of self-unawareness. We can't block a pregnant woman's access to health care. It's way too complicated an irony for Greg to comprehend, so let it pass, let it pass. But his response after that was amazing. We deserve that right as well, and I think that we should be posting their exact names and addresses online, on social, on websites. So if you desire to make their lives extra difficult, you have the right too. They do a group protest? What's wrong with a personal protest? Connect the cost to the actions. Dox the people who are destroying other people's experiences. Gutfeld is an extraordinarily stupid man convinced he is an extraordinarily brilliant man. In 10,000 lifetimes, it will never occur to him that what the deranged man who live-streamed himself approaching the home of Barack Obama looking for access tunnels so he could go hunt Obama, that he was doing that using information supplied in a social media post made by Donald Trump, a doxing by Donald Trump. He'll never understand that. To be Gutfeld, to be on Fox, to be a fascist, to be a Republican is to believe you can never do wrong and no rules apply to you and no one else can ever be right. I will not suggest doxing Greg Gutfeld. I mean, who would want to see where he lives? Also, more importantly, I have been the victim of doxing done by a viewer of the Fox News Channel. I would not even wish it on hosts of Fox News. After all, if there is a hell, they already have a studio set up there that will suffice. Greg, await! Oh Trump doxed somebody? Ah, I'm going to hell! Gutfeld, today's worst person in hell! The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally to the number one story on the countdown, and it's happened. In preparing this script for this edition, and to be fair, still a little hazy from my illness, I had to carefully calculate the dates on each page based on the last show, which was September 8, last week, and I typed out today's date, and it did not immediately shock me or strike me as anything significant. I just typed 9, 11, 2023. Well, it's understandable. It's 22 years. I mention it to young people and I get the looks I must have given to my folks 22 years after Pearl Harbor or 22 years after the end of World War II. Nothing of importance happened to me on September 11th, 2001. I mean, against statistical probability, I had friends, acquaintances in each of the two towers and three out of the four planes, and I only learned of the death of one of them from the missing posters. I rather unexpectedly became a street news reporter for old friends, one who ran an L.A. TV station and one who ran an L.A. all-news radio station. I felt more keenly that day than any other in my life that I was the descendant of countless New York cops and firefighters. My grandfather, my mother's father, drove a hook and ladder in the Bronx. I have his badge. I was taken by cops for a series of harrowing behind the police line walks. Behind Ground Zero, I can still hear in my head the matter-of-factness of a dispatcher's voice coming across one of the radios saying, body parts found on 14th floor of the World Financial Center, and another equally weary and broken voice repeating it. Body parts found on 14th floor of World Financial Center. I didn't see the attacks. My apartment then only faced uptown. When I woke up that morning, all I saw was as beautiful a sky as I had ever seen before and to this day have ever seen since. By the time I got down to the street, there were already people with glazed eyes and dust-covered shoes and pants who were just reaching my neighborhood from their walk from the Trade Center. The Trade Center was 75 blocks south of where I lived. I was the witness who didn't see anything. However, I had already been on the radio in L.A. three times, and I was on my way to Times Square for a television shot when I realized it was now hours later and I hadn't eaten. And I was just passing one of my places, a restaurant called Red Eye Grill, and uh, unbelievably, it was open. Half a dozen waiters, familiar faces, hugs, tears. 
They made me my regular meal. They didn't charge me for it. And then I went to the restroom to wash up and there was an attendant in there and I recognized him too. And after I was finished being even more embarrassed than usual at the whole process of somebody handing me a washcloth in a bathroom, I reached to give him a tip and I found exactly three quarters in my pocket and a $50 bill in my wallet. And the attendant said, oh, I'll take those quarters. I can't use the payphone with a 50. And I didn't understand what he meant. So I asked him, what do you mean? He introduced himself. His name was Thomas Reyes. He explained. Two weeks earlier, Thomas Reyes said he had been laid off by an investment firm that he had worked for downtown. They liked him. He liked them, but jobs like his came and went, and he was out. Fired on August 24, 2001. But he said they told him that if he wanted to, he could keep his desk for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month. He could come in and use their computer and call around looking for work, maybe even pick up a shift at the firm here and there freelance. But to that point, in large part because Labor Day had been the previous Monday, and in New York, you leave for Labor Day a week before and you come back a week after, there were no openings yet for him in the investment business or anything else that he could find. But years before, he had worked odd jobs at that place, the Red Eye Grill, including as the attendant in the men's room. And this was the only place where they had offered him a paycheck to do anything. He was still going to his old job and his old desk every day, except when Red Eye called and said they needed him in the men's room. He had been on Wall Street. He was now not just the men's room attendant. He was the backup men's room attendant at a restaurant in Midtown. And that morning, 7 a.m., 7.30, he was going out the door to his desk in the investment firm to work the phones again when his cell phone rang. The guy doing the midday shift in the men's room at Red Eye Grill on 7th Avenue had called in sick. He had, if he wanted it, eight hours of work coming to him. 60 bucks, 75 with tips, if he wanted it. And so that was how Tomas Reyes was in the men's room at the Red Eye Grill at 57th Street and 6th Avenue, handing out very few towels to very few customers on September 11th, 2001, rather than sitting at his desk in the World Trade Center. And that is also why he wanted my quarters and not my $50 bill, because he was trying to use the restaurant payphone to call his friends, who still worked at the investment firm's office, which was on floors 101, 102, 103, 104, and 105 of World Trade Center building number one. Because his old firm was Cantor Fitzgerald. And he was not there that day only because the full-time men's room attendant at the restaurant had called in sick. And I wished him luck with his phone calls, and I got out of there as quickly as I could because I had seen the video, and he clearly had not seen the video. They were all dead at Cantor Fitzgerald including two classmates of mine from college, Eamon McEnany, Mike Tanner. They were dead in the pyre of the building in which I had started my television career 20 years and a month before. The brother of another friend of mine was in the other tower. I had a friend, one of my cameramen on my show at Fox Sports, who I'd worked with literally three months before, Tom Pecorelli. He was on one plane. The former MSNBC guest Barbara Olson was on another a hockey acquaintance of mine, Garnet Ace Bailey, was on a third plane. 
I went to the bar at the Red Eye Grill and I asked the bartender to change the 50 for me and to give me all the coins he could spare. It was probably $5 worth. And I kept two tens for myself just in case and I went back in the men's room and I gave the rest and all the coins to Thomas Reyes for his phone calls. Apparently the battery was gone on his cell. And I hope I did a good job not letting him know that none of his friends would be answering. I mentioned Mike Tanner. I did not know he was dead until much later, September 24th. About Eamon McEnany, I knew right away that morning. He had been one of the heroes of the 1993 attack on the Trade Center. On that day, he had guided a human chain of survivors down 100 flights of smoky stairwells. He worked on one of the uppermost floors, but this time in 2001, there were no chains for him to lead though no one who knew him has ever had a second's doubt that he tried. Mike Tanner was the starting quarterback and Eamon McEnany the starting wide receiver in the first sporting event I ever covered for money. $15 from United Press International to cover a Cornell football game in 1976, and wouldn't you know, the only thing that happened all day was Eamon dropping a punt, setting up the other guy's field goal. Cornell loses three to nothing, and I'm supposed to write 200 words about it. And telling this story as methodically as possible, I only summon up about 110 words. And the UPI man in Albany taking in my story says, no, that's okay. You don't have to pad it out with 90 words on the early fall weather. We'll still send you the 15 bucks, kid. And I found out about Mike Tanner the way too many people found out about loved ones or friends or fellow alumni or just anonymous to them smiling faces who suddenly counted every bit as much as those we knew in that horrible month. Mike's face and name were on a missing poster on Canal Street in Manhattan. I stopped and stared at it for five minutes. I missed a report I was supposed to file for KFWB Radio in Los Angeles. Somehow... The circumstances of finding out that way foretold accurately how much shock and pain there was yet to come. But the point is, I had a 9-11 story. And you did too, probably, even at remote distances, even friend of a friend of a friend. Some lucky ones don't. Some went through their entire lives and go through their entire lives still unaffected by 9-11. And now with time... More and more people think of it like Pearl Harbor, like World War II, like the assassination of Lincoln. And it has to be that way, or we would never survive. But for those of us who still have the stories, Democrats have them, and Republicans have them, and those who thought the Iraq War made sense have them, and those who knew it for what it was have them. We were all in that sad thing together, and we always will be. But unfortunately, as the anniversaries of 9-11 began, President Bush and the Republicans were making it clear that somehow their part of this enforced tragic togetherness was more important than the part of their critics. The only positive of 9-11 and the days and weeks and years that so slowly and painfully followed it was the unanimous humanity here in New York and throughout the country, the government the president in particular was given every possible measure of support. Those who did not belong to the president's party tabled that reality. Those who doubted the mechanics of his election the year before ignored that. 
those who wondered about his qualifications forgot that. Nearly unanimous support of his government was granted. And that is something that cannot be taken away from that government by its critics. It can only be squandered by those who use it not to heal a nation's wounds, but to take political advantage of them. Terrorists did not come and steal our newly regained sense of being American first and political 50th, nor did the Democrats, nor did the media, nor did the people. The president and those around him and those who followed him in his party, they did that. They promised bipartisanship and then showed that to them bipartisanship meant that their party would rule and the rest of us would follow or be branded with ever escalating hysteria as morally or intellectually confused, as appeasers, as those who, in Vice President Cheney's words, validate the strategy of the terrorists. These men promised protection and then showed that to them protection meant going to war against a despot whose hand they had once shaken, who did not have WMD, who did not have a damn thing to do with 9-11, against whom plans had been laid many years before 9-11. The polite phrase for how so many of us were duped into supporting a war or at least acquiescing to it on the false premise that it had something to do with 9-11 is lying by inference. The impolite phrase is war crime. The America we live in now in which one party believes its hatred is love, its fascism is freedom, its depravity is purity, that began as the 9-11 anniversaries began to follow one upon the other. After taking cynical advantage of the unanimity and the love and transmuting it into fraudulent war and needless death, after monstrously transforming it into fear and suspicion and turning that fear into the campaign slogan of election after election, we arrived in a world in which, when Trump enacted the worst imaginable cliché, wrapping himself in a flag, wrapping himself in the American flag, the morons thought, that proved he loved America. So too have they succeeded in this and are still succeeding. And still, although they don't call it that, this government, well, the government of Trump, the government in waiting of Trump, uses 9-11, uses the hatreds of 9-11 as a wedge to pit Americans against Americans. This is an odd point at which to cite a television program, especially one from March 1960. But long ago, a series called The Twilight Zone broadcast a riveting episode called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. In brief, a meteor sparks rumors of an invasion by extraterrestrials disguised as humans. The electricity goes out in a neighborhood. One neighbor pleads for calm. Suddenly, his lights, and only the lights in his house, Go back on. Someone therefore suggests he must be the alien. Then another man's car starts suddenly. As charges and suspicion and panic overtake the street, guns are inevitably produced. An alien is shot. 
He turns out to be just another neighbor who was returning from going for help. The camera then pulls back to a nearby hill where two extraterrestrials are seen manipulating a small device that can jam electricity. The veteran tells his novice that there's no need to actually attack. You just turn off a few of the human machines and then, quote, they pick the most dangerous enemy they can find and it's themselves. And then in perhaps his finest piece of writing, Rod Serling sums it up with words of remarkable prescience, given where we have found ourselves in ever-increasing measures since September 11th, 2001. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all its own for the children and the children yet unborn. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from our studios in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Richard Lewis. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 979th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bolton's as the news warrants. And as this continuing throat infection permits. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. It gives me hope and security and just stability. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.